Hello and welcome to another episode of the British Food History Podcast. My name is Dr. Neil Buttery. Today I'm talking with Jane Stewart about one of my favourite topics, that very weird fruit that is the medlar. Jane has done some sterling work in the area of medlar awareness. And now, because of her good work, the medlar is not the forgotten fruit it once was. She has a medlar orchard and associated business, Eastgate Larder, selling a whole range of medlar products, and is the author of Medlars, Growing and Cooking, published by Prospect Books. She is now a leading expert in growing and cooking medlars, as well as in the history of the medlar. A reminder before we begin, I want your comments, questions and queries about this episode or any episode of the podcast so far, there will be, hopefully anyway, another postbag episode at the end of the season. So contact me, email neil at britishfoodhistory.com or send me a DM on Twitter at neilbuttery or Instagram doctor, that's dr underscore neil underscore buttery. Leave a message in the comments or post on the British Food History Facebook discussion page that's at forward slash groups forward slash British Food History. I also want to hear from you if you've spotted anything British food history in the news or if you've got a pet project, say you've rediscovered an old traditional technique, I want to know. Also please, if you haven't already, rate or review the British Food History Podcast wherever you normally get your podcasts so that more people can discover it. If you want to support the upkeep of the podcast and blogs by donating a virtual coffee or pint, please visit the website britishfoodhistory.com and go to the support the blog and podcast tab. There, if you like, you could become a £3 monthly subscriber. That's about 380 in US dollars for a frame of reference there if you need it, where you can get access to premium blog content, a monthly newsletter and my Easter eggs. Often, darlings I have to kill to keep the podcast to a reasonable length. By the way, there are some corkers associated with today's episode, let me tell you. But I'll inform you more about those at the end. But there are loads of Easter eggs now, along with a bonus episode from the end of last season and a bonus mini-season about forgotten foods. In fact, one of those episodes happens to be about the meddler. And you can also support me by purchasing either one of my books, Before Mrs. Beaton, Elizabeth Raffold, England's Most Influential Housekeeper, and A Dark History of Sugar, both published by Pen and Sod History. Now, people who've been reading my blog for the last few years will know that I've covered the meddler quite a few times, especially from the point of view of the unusual shape of the fruit, what it looks like, and therefore the names it once went by, all very bawdy and foot. Now, we don't talk about that in today's episode, If you want to know more about that, I've got links to a past blog post that does talk about it in the show notes. But what Jane and I do talk about, however, is how she discovered the fruit herself and made a business out of it, the different domesticated varieties, as well as wild fruits, why medal trees are the perfect thing to plant no matter what kind of gardener you are, the importance of medlars in the past, medlars in the kitchen, the subtleties of making medlar jelly, and much more. I'll be back at the end to tell you about the Easter eggs, but now, Meddlers with Jane Stewart. Thank you very much for joining me on the podcast, Jane. You're very welcome. Thank you, Neil. Thank you very much indeed. I'm very excited to be talking about one of my favourite topics, and that is the, the meddler. For those who don't know what we're talking about, can you describe what a meddler is? What how is it eaten? What does it look like? 
I will start actually with the fruit because that's the first thing you're likely to notice has happened. If I think back to my very first experience, um, I came face to face with brown fruits that were probably an inch and a half to two inches in mm -hmm. diameter. The month was very early November mm -hmm. and I was in my now husband's garden in Cambridgeshire. And that's where I first literally collided with uh, meddlers. <laughs> I would loosely describe them as similar to the size of a golf ball. Of course, some cultivars are slightly bigger and some are daintier uh, or even a slightly different sort of more teardrop shaped. Mm -hmm. But they are brown. And that is, I think, <laughs> one of the characteristics one needs to be open about because we don't, as humans, associate brown as a colour with freshness and desirability, particularly in fruit. We think of composts and um, that kind of thing instead. So we need to front up and say, that's how these things look. When they are fully grown and about to become definitely very brown, they have a more golden colour. I would liken them to maybe a russet apple. If you can conjure up in your imagination, not the smooth skin, but a very slightly um, roughened matte skin with a golden to tan colored um, exterior. The mm -hmm. interior of the fruit at that stage is a beautiful apple flesh color. So not white, but that sort of very light natural fruit interior color. And it's impenetrable. It's impenetrable to squirrels, wasps and human teeth. <laughs> I wouldn't even want to try to do battle with one with a serrated knife. I think my fingers could come off worse. They're more challenging than quinces because they're so small. You know, with a quince, you can get your hand around it and sort of carve into it. Yes, the, f the first time I used them, see, I had no idea what how to use them because there's not very much out there. Very old recipes don't tell you because they assume you know what to do anyway. So exactly. I remember trying to eat unripe meddlers. I know, and I'm fast forwarding it a bit, but you have to wait for them to become sort of overripe. I had no frame of reference. Well, how ripe is overripe? And I think I was using them far too early and I wasn't very impressed. It took a few goes. I have access mm. to a meddler tree. Right. Yes. No, nobody eats the fruit, so I have access to them. So every year I've learned a little bit more. Yeah. And this is why I'm so glad that your book exists now, because I've actually got someone to hold my hand, which is the f first time ever. Oh, So I'm just trying to find you. my own way. <laughs> I can hope. I hope I can be the person standing alongside you as you admire your medlar harvest this coming autumn. So we've talked about the medlar in its fully grown form and its size. But you mentioned, Neil, this bletting mm. process. Now, this is actually a term coined by a Norfolk botanist, um, which pleased me hugely when I discovered it. In the 1830s, John Lindley is his name, and he was born on the edge of what is now uh, the city of Norwich. And um, he described it as this extreme ripening, this naturally occurring process whereby over a period of days or weeks, if you've picked your fruit at the right moment, when it is genuinely ready to be separated from the tree, the astringency drifts into a mellow sweetness. The hardness drifts into the most beautiful softness to the point where you can squeeze the fruit almost as if you were squeezing it out of a tube. It has that kind of consistency. It's the most wonderful finger food to introduce to people of all ages. <laughs> <laughs> you know, grown-ups can feel very overfaced. Children are actually a good audience because they love picking things yeah, up in their fingers. Yeah, sure. exactly. 
So blessing is a process of ripening or maturing. And the fruit can have the appearance of rottenness. The skin darkens two or three shades. It can look as though it could do with a decent rub with some oil of ule because yes. it can get a very slightly wrinkled, but it the, the skin becomes papery thin. And when I'm bletting them, and I blet hundreds of kilos over the period of um, about six weeks, um, you can smell when they are bletting because the lovely fruity aroma um, really becomes pronounced the softer they become that the softer they become mm. and the bletting starts right on the inside as it does with peri pears i do wonder whether their closest poem cousin is actually the peri pear oh okay i wonder i don't mm. know mm. i'm not asserting that but the meddler's first cousins are the apple the pear and the quince and like the pear meddlers have to ripen off the tree generally of mm -hmm. course there is an exception but they have to ripen off the tree. And to become usable as a table fruit, which is a way that people very often don't even think of trying them, they need to be exquisitely um, brown all the way through mm -hmm. and so soft that you would, or, or so delicate, that you would imagine them, if they were on sale, being stowed in those little paper cases that are used for figs when they come <laughs> into yes. the... Yes. Oh, they'd look quite nice in those, wouldn't they? Oh, I could see a whole um, labour-intensive world of activity, Neil, <laughs> putting <laughs> medlars in their individual paper cases to send them to market. But actually, no, they are a rare groove fruit. You know, they're not anything like as abundant in terms of the number of trees that exist in the UK. I think apples and pears and quinces outstrip the meddler population many, 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 many times over. When it comes to rare poem fruits, maybe the one that people usually think of is, is quince. That's probably the best known of the less known, Yes, <laughs> if that makes sense. I, I completely agree with you. Because yeah. there's other ones too, isn't there, part of that group? There's things like um, sorbs. Mm. So the service berry, which I've, had, yes. I've tried, which are also very good, which you have to bless some of those. There's a, there's a tree growing near me in Cholton, for any of my uh -huh. Cunians out there. Right. There's a tree next to the Mersey River. Yeah, great big one. So I often pick some straight off. They just bled on the tree and I have a little munch. So yeah, they really are a forgotten food. Or I suppose when I was writing about them, maybe six or seven years ago, hmm. I was saying they were forgotten foods, but due to, I mean, your good work, I mean, I, I've tried really hard to try and get the meddler back, but of course your efforts have been, <laughs> certainly been the most significant. I think that deciding when I was flirting with a change of direction in my working life, and I was floundering because change, change can lead to a necessary period of floundering before clarity appears. Mm -hmm. I think the decision to focus only on the one fruit was key. Yeah. I'm not trying to be a master of heritage fruit. I don't want to cover the waterfront. And actually looking back on it now, it was inevitable, I think, that if I was to go down the route that I've chosen of being a grower and a maker of something, then the meddler had to be it because it has an emotional, familial significance mm. to my husband, David, and myself. Through his family, you know, there is a story that goes back a couple of generations there, which I touch on in the book.
Just coming back to your original question, Neil, I've talked a little bit about the fruit, which is the thing that one first notices, particularly in the autumn. But actually, you know, I, well, people always ask me, well, you know, how does it grow? Is it a bush? Is it a tree? What is it? Well, it's a tree. Originally a bush in the wild with lots of thorns, but the domesticated medlar, so grafted onto a rootstock, which is commonly hawthorn, but okay. can sometimes be quince, or on very special occasions on a very large plot pear rootstock, which mm. will produce a beautiful broad in the beam, um, broader in the beam than it is tall tree. I see. It is a tree um, and it can grow as a half standard, reaching maybe between three and four metres in height. It gives you lots of control as an owner and lots of freedom if you want it to become a wild looking um, lollipop or bridesmaid's posy kind of tree. Oh, you yes. can let it run wild in the crown area. And equally, if you want to keep it controlled in terms of height and reach, you can do that too. It's a perfect choice for people who are uncertain about their pruning capabilities because there are no absolute pruning requirements. For yes, medlars. I've heard that about medlar trees. Yes, you, if, <laughs> if you want, you can just let them sprawl. And they, and they do sort of half Nelson style double back crook turns. Yeah. They're very distinctive even when they're bare. For, the, for those three months between December and March. Yeah. And they repay their presence in the garden because they have activity, visual activity, for nine out of 12 months, mm. even, even in the UK. So they outdo, I think, a lot of other trees. They're the first to come into leaf and they are the last to be harvested. And I, I think that's just sort of a wonderful a wonderful contribution that they can make to any setting, whether it's in a big pot on in a tiny courtyard mm. um, or a backyard or in an orchard setting where space is not at a premium. So from the gardener's point of view, very versatile. Absolutely. And a singleton will produce fruit. You get a lot of fruit from a small tree. Oh, yeah. But you don't require a pollination partner. That's that's mm. or a fertilization partner in the way that you do with apples, for example. It's funny you should say that about it being a thorny bush in the wild. Because when, when I look at one, I always think it's a cross between a russet apple, a very russety russet apple mm -hmm. <laughs> with that rough skin like you described. Yeah. And um, a really big kind of cultivated um, rose hip. You, know, you get yes. really big rose hips sometimes yes. in people's gardens. It's yes. like someone's crossed the two together. To, so to hear that it's kind of a thorny bush sort of makes sense to me now. I had the privilege recently of admiring a genuine wild meddler that found its way accidentally into somebody's pocket in the form of a fallen fruit more than okay. a decade ago. Is and that accidentally in inverted commas, is it? It's entirely, it, it, it's entirely accidental, Neil. I couldn't possibly say anything other than that. Okay. But this, the, the product of this uh, accidental arrival, um, is now standing about eight feet tall. It's hmm. just become a teenager, and it has had a wonderful flowering season. And I'm going to go back and see it again hmm. as the fruit approaches the end of its growing cycle so sometime in october oh that sounds good but the thorns are epic and the fruits i'm assuming are smaller well this is what i'm going to find out because it's never fruited before oh this particular one is obviously very happy because it's now 13 14 years old and it is going to crop this year exciting how important was the meddler to people 
living in Britain and maybe this end of Europe in the past. It's, it's not part of our daily life anymore. But that wasn't always the case, was it? I think that they were, they might have been important psychologically. <laughs> I think they might have been important medicinally. Mm-hmm. So the sorbitol in a soft meddler is very good at loosening um, a tight tummy. Right. If one has got, you know, a bunged up constipation type scenario. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's the sorbitol, not the sugar as such, but the sorbitol that does that job. And vice versa. The other killer, and it's still a killer in many cultures around the world, was diarrhea. And the astringent, pectin-rich, fibrous nature of the fully grown, unbletted, rock-hard meddler that I described earlier could be boiled and thereby softened and consumed either as an astringent medication. I mean, differently palatable to the modern diorolite that we can buy at Boots. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but these are the facts of life, aren't they? Um, So I think that the meddler had possible appeal to humans because problems that were difficult to solve in other ways could be solved by meddlers. I still don't believe, I don't think, that as a human, I would have been entranced by the sight of a brown meddler fruit hanging off a tree when I might also have been confronted by a pomegranate or an apple. Yes, or... given the choice. Well, exactly. You're going to possibly go for right. the other one, wherever well, exactly. it may be. <laughs> so I think that where meddlers reached, let's jump forwards a long way very quickly. Let's look at life at the court of Henry VIII. Mm-hmm. Meddlers probably hit the fashion high spots at around that time. They were being planted in orchards, which were a new fangled courtly concept, Mm -hmm. as I understand it. So when Chapman, uh, John Chapman laid out the gardens at the newly acquired Hampton Court Palace, for example, meddlers were put in there. One of Henry VIII's you know, gargantuan picnic trips across the channel to talk to the French king about the much-wanted divorce from Catherine of Aragon so he could marry Anne Boleyn. Mm. That picnic feast, which went on for days, involved a whole raft of meats, game birds and that kind of thing, but also 400 dozen pears and 400 dozen meddlers. Right. So we have something that has a medicinal role, something that is undoubtedly, when it's perfectly bletted, very palatable, but you might want to shut your eyes before you bite into it because it's brown. (laughs) But you have something there that has been elevated to courtly favour. And the monarchy, the royal court, was um, a trendsetter. Yeah, I mean, this really surprised me when I was reading your book, because I'd always assumed that the mm. reason the meddlers kind of hung on mm. <laughs> in in the diet of, of British people was mm. because by the time you've got to December, mm-hmm. you're left with a Hobson's choice because yeah. all the other fruit, if it hasn't been preserved, has rotted away or if it hasn't been eaten. So you're left with the meddler, which is going to get you through that winter. And I'm sure that is part of the story. You're absolutely right, Neil. Mm. It is definitely part of the story. And I think, as with so many of these questions, they have multiple strands to the answer. There is no one killer fact Mm. that's going to answer it. You know, you can't say it's absolutely because of this or absolutely because of that. Similarly, the you know, the gradual disappearance and decline in aware popularity and then awareness of the meddler had multiple strands to it as well. 
Medlars were always seen as, in ancient times, I think, were seen as probably, my hunch is that they were useful. They were also mm -hmm. palatable. They then became fashionable and their capacity to remain in good enough shape, as you say, to get through the tricky period from the beginning, you know, hardcore winter. I was really surprised of the flavour of a well-bletted medlar. And I think there's a certain amount of trouble describing the flavour. It's a bit like trying to describe the flavour of saffron, where it's actually quite unique and there's nothing really you can compare it to. Exactly. I am, however, going to try. I would say it's a cross between a really good squeegee medjool date. Yeah. And so all nice and sweet. But then there's also the real tartness of a Bramley apple in there too at the same time. So it's a wonderful kind of clash of yeah. flavours which really gets your salivary glands going. Yeah. You know, no, you're really absolutely delicious. right. There's a wonderful complexity of rewards mm. in the mouth. And I'm just in the process of writing a piece for a magazine that's going to be coming out in uh, the autumn in time for harvest. Mm. And, you know, I've been asked which my favourite cultivars are. So my number one top favourite is the practically perfect in every way Iranian meddler. Mm -hmm. And it's practically perfect because it's been designed through breeding yeah. to let and fully ripen on the tree. So that's a big tick for me. Secondly, physically, it's incredibly beautiful. It tends to be longer than it is round. Oh, okay. So it's got a sort of teardrop shape. Mm -hmm. And when you pop it in your mouth, you get this amazing, I would say it's an extreme, if you could imagine a juicy medjool date rather than several degrees juicier because they're yeah. soft aren't they yes so factor in some juiciness and then imagine that you have squeezed a beautiful amalfi lemon over that juicy medjool date mm -hmm. and that's what happens in the mouth with the iranian meddler right so you're getting sweetness followed by a definite citrus spritz so that's one cultivar now last autumn when i was writing the book or finishing the book rather, I um, and my harvest buddy tasted our way around the orchard here at Eastgate. I've got nine distinct cultivars. Mm. The 10th, the Russian, is coming later this year. Oh. Admission time, you know, I'm so focused on, you know, the growing and the making and the this and the that and the other. I had not done a systematic tasting test until then. And I discovered, to my amazement, that the common Dutch which is mm -hmm. quite a small, round, beautiful meddler that possibly was involved in the breeding of the Nottingham, but I don't know. The common Dutch tastes for all the world like very ripe honeydew melon. Mm. I was so surprised at the number of, not just the variety of flavours, but actually mm. the, the number of varieties that exist. Because I just thought, well, it's a rare food or a rare plant. There's just going to be one kind. Just in mind, I didn't really give it much thought. Then I kind of thought, well, of course it's going to be different. Well, <laughs> different you're ones. making a really interesting <laughs> point because when we look, look, let's look at a close cousin, the apple. Mm. How many cultivars do we know there are? Is it 2,000? It's something like that, isn't it? Okay. Now, the medlar cultivars, uh, when I look at the index in the book, because this is where I think I see the information most closely um, visible, you know, to make an impact, it's actually the what I would call the Eurasian cultivars. Okay, this is the original homeland of the meddler. Mm -hmm. It's not a surprise to see that the greatest array of cultivar names come from that region. 
it makes complete sense. Sure. Botanically speaking, we have a very, very, very um well, yes, it's a very narrow range of genetic variety in the meadow. And this is yeah. one of the things that makes it so difficult to do what I call facial recognition. I can spot a Nottingham, I can spot an Iranian, I can tell you what a large Dutch looks like, I can tell you what a large Russian looks like. Mm. But when it comes to, and I think I'd probably be able to pick out a Breda, but when it comes to Bredus Royce and Flanders Giant and the Royal Macrocarpa Westerfeld, don't tell anyone, but they all look the same to me. And actually that raises another point. Genetic testing would be the thing to do. You can mm. do it with apples. You can do it with cherries. You can do it with pears. And I think you can do it with plums. But to create the genetic profile database would cost a lot. Yes, I guess money. all the other fruits you've just listed are kind of economically important fruits still. And the meddler has unfortunately dropped out of that band. Well, <laughs> and all of this, everything you've just said absolutely conspires to this very, very narrow range, you know, of actual distinct cultivars, probably numbers about 10. Mm. This is nothing compared to the 2000 possibilities in the apple world. And they're still creating more. Can we talk a little bit about meddlers in the kitchen? Oh, yes. Because this is obviously where, where I at least from my point of view, where the, it, the story begins for me, attempting recipes. The first places that I looked and used to help me were were two Jane Grigson books, yeah. English Food and her Fruit Book. But both of those books only have one recipe. It's the same mm. recipe. She tells it in slightly different ways, which helped. Uh, and that's medlar jelly. Yes. So for most people, I would say, if they have tried medlars in some yeah. form, medlar jelly is probably the most likely weigh in would you agree i think well judging by the sales figures for eastgate larder mm. it is a brilliantly straightforward understandable entry point for somebody who might half an hour previously never even met a meddler mm. they meet it they squeeze it they taste some meddler jelly maybe with a piece of charcuterie if they're a meat eater or with a piece of beautiful goats use milk or cow's milk cheese mm -hmm. you know, think of something like a gorgeous brie style cheese we've got a brilliant example here in east anglia called baron biggard made at I'm, a big fan. Dairy. I'm a big fan of so baron am i mm -hmm. i you i sacrificed <laughs> my cholesterol level quite dramatically <laughs> in the development of the recipes so the point being that i think you know as as a as a culture we understand the concept of a sweet jelly that is paired with something savoury yeah. to create a new taste and texture experience. We do it with lamb, we do it with pork, with game. You know, these jellies are very much, they're, they're very much loved. And I think you're absolutely right. This is a great entry point for people. And as a, you know, a first time maker, it was the first thing I had to get. Well, actually it's not. I had a first go at making medlar cheese. I was first looking for recipes, which would have been in the end, I think in about 2009. I think one of the early recipes might have by that stage turned up in The Guardian because Nigel Slater. Oh, yeah, he's a big fan, isn't he? Yeah. He's got right. a medlar tree and he's written a couple of times um, about medlar jelly. So, but finding ways of doing it. In the end, I had to sort of, you know, I found various books and I saw, you know, a pattern and then I started tinkering with sugar ratios. And I also, you know, being a, a stubborn 
person, <laughs> I was determined not to end up using that horrible preserving sugar because I think it produces a very bouncy, chewy result. Yes. Um, but how did I overcome the problem of the lack of pectin in medla jelly? And the answer seemed to be adding a few, and I'm approximate about it rather than precise, a proportion of the fully grown but unbletted yeah. so still white fruit with the pectin and a judicious amount of lemon juice when it comes to the second boil and that's over that's produced what i call a sort of an appealing soft set that's not rubbery because it's very easy because one's conscious of the lack of pectin to overboil yes indeed i think um a couple of years ago a couple of years batch was perfect because it was all they were bletted but they still had like you were saying before they, they, they bled from mm. the center outwards so if you yeah. Chop one in half, quite often you just get yeah. a ring of white. Yeah. And I just had rings of white and they set absolutely perfectly. It would it? have done, yeah. It, it's the Bletter's ring of confidence, isn't it? Do you yeah. remember the Colgate toothpaste? <laughs> I do remember. <laughs> <laughs> Reference for the younger listeners there. This year yeah. I waited too long and they were all very bletted and there was no white okay. in there and yes they just i let them sit there i took you you gave me a bit of advice via twitter i think the previous year and that's to be to wait because it, it doesn't form that gel straight away but after kind of two months i'm thinking hmm <laughs> right okay so i had to i had to reboil it all with a couple of t- tablespoons of serto okay and actually i mean recently you know i i make thousands and thousands of these jars mm. every year and I recently, I don't know what happened. You know, I had an entire, what looked like a very good haul from a morning's work mm. of a hundred and something jars. And every <laughs> single one of them had too much movement in it. And what I did was literally to scrape everything back in to the clean muslin pan. And I, I didn't add anything. I just brought it back up to temperature and boiled it for another five or 10 minutes. You know, when I tilted the pan, I could see that the viscous surface appearing on the top of the liquid. What I would say is if meddlers have gone absolutely so far over that people aren't nervous about making jelly with them, if you, there's, and there's a recipe for this in the book, and it's dead easy, and it's an incredibly useful product to keep, and it's virtually indestructible, keep it in the fridge. Simmer the meddlers in your normal volume of water mm-hmm. relative to your weight of fruit. Strain the liquid off, put it into a shallow pan and then gradually reduce it in volume over um, a low heat. Mm. It will take a little while, mm-hmm. but you can produce various grades to suit your requirements of a medless syrup, which is entirely natural. I use it as a substitute for runny honey in salad dressings. I will use it as the sweetening drizzle to go over some rhubarb. It helps to keep the colour um, as well as adding flavour. I use it in all those sorts of situations. It goes, it swirls when it's slightly more viscous, so take it down a bit further. So if you think roughly, if you have a litre of juice, you might reduce it to 200 mils. Oh, okay. Or you could take it down to 150, which would be a good consistency for making medlar ripple ice cream, for which there's also a re- recipe in the book. Yes, that funny, one leapt out that. at me, that one. <laughs> it's so it sounds e- great. Neil, it's so easy. It's so easy. The trick is not to overmix. Literally swirl it through. Mm-hmm. You know, have a play with it. And it, it is indestructible. I keep a jar of medlar syrup in the fridge and it is endlessly helpful. When I'm looking for a molasses type or a runny honey type 
thing. Mm-hmm. And I think, well, this is great. This is another way of getting the benefit of this wonderful fruit into the diet. Very good. Oh, I've made um, a medlatart from Thomas yes. Dawson's. Yes. Yes. The Good Housewife's Jewel. Am I remembering that, that's that right. correctly? Yeah, yes. I've tried the medlatart there and that's really good. I was really I was going to say I'm really surprised, but Actually, I'm not surprised anymore. I've cooked so many historical foods now, and it's more surprising when they turn out not good. (laughs) It's a really nice recipe. There are two or three tart recipes in the book. The recipe that has been very surprising is the medlar curd, which is based on the quince curd recipe out of the sister volume in the Heritage Fruit series published by Prospect Books. And that book was written by Jane McMorland Hunter and Sue Dunster. So there's a recipe in there for quince curd. So I mucked about a little bit with the proportions because medlars are slightly different, as you know, and Mm -hmm. produced these jars of medlar curd. And a a tasting foodie friend came over and we did a sort of taste test. And then it became obvious that one would make an ice cream with this curd as a base. And it's really complicated. You have to get a pot of double cream and you have to get the same volume of medlar curd Mm. and you tip them both into a bowl. And you add some flakes of sea salt, whisk them together, you get something very brown, surprise, surprise. And you tip it into an ice cream container, a freezable container, and pop it in the freezer. Oh, you see, you don't need to put it in a machine, just go straight in. Salted medlar curd ice cream. Wow, that's great. And that is quite dangerous. Bet it is. What I mean is, I have actually been spotted eating it straight out of the cart. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's such variety in that recipe section of the book. Thank you. Well, it's thanks to all the lovely people who know more about medlar recipes than I do, Mm. who were happy and content to have their recipes included. And then I've included also the Eastgate Larder recipes for medlar jelly and medlar fruit cheese. And I'm thankful, you know, Mark Diacono's, you know, legendary sticky medlar toffee pudding Mm -hmm. um, is in there. And, you know, and so it goes on. So it's, they're not just my recipes. They're recipes I've created on the back of other people's work, maybe with quinces, for example. You know, the kind contributions that people have been happy to allow me to include. So I do feel that it is as comprehensive a body of recipe work as you can find. It's time to wrap up. Could, could I ask what, what's coming next for you in Eastgate Larder in the, in the rest of the year? What I am looking to do, and I'm doing one this afternoon, is to uh, increase the number of engagements talking to horticultural clubs and societies around East Anglia. I'm talking to a relatively local one up on the north coast this afternoon. But that kind of activity is great for helping to sort of spread my passion if you like, mm-hmm. for the meddler, and to encourage people to try the fruit. I've got my meddlers thawing out downstairs, sitting on the lid of the arger on some kitchen towel on a plate to take <laughs> along this afternoon. Well, because they always ask, well, what is it? And I say, well, this is what they can look like. These are from last year's harvest. They've just come out of the freezer. And they t- I promise everybody who's listening, they taste as good as they do when they're just freshly blettered. Thank you very much, Jane. If you want to know more about Eastgate Larder, please visit eastgatelarder.co.uk Jane can be found on social media as well at Eastgate Larder on Instagram and Twitter there are links to those in the show notes as are links to Jane's wonderful book Meddlers Growing and Cooking published by the equally wonderful Prospect Books also in the show notes meddler related posts I have written on my blog in the past 
one of which is a recipe for that medlar tart that I brought up in today's discussion. There's another recipe for medlar jelly and that post about its, well, rather rude alternative names. And if you're a subscriber, there's a spoken word version of that on the Easter eggs page, if you want to hear it rather than read it. I also went on That Shakespeare Life last year. It's hosted by Cassidy Cash. It's a great podcast. And I went on there to talk about meddlers and their inherent rudeness and how Shakespeare used them in his writing. Okay, Easter eggs. Yeah, I really had to kill some darlings this week. But of course, they're all preserved in the Easter eggs archive. There are three this time. One is Jane's theory of how the meddler may have been introduced to the British Isles by the Romans. Another is the uncut discussion about meddlers in the kitchen, which I pretty much had to cut in half. So there's loads more cooking tips and cooking ideas to be found in there. And the third one is about why meddlers, or why Jane thinks anyway, why meddlers fell out of favour, fell out of fashion and became an almost forgotten fruit. So if you do fancy becoming a £3 subscriber or to make a donation to the running of the podcast and blogs, please go to britishfoodhistory.com and click on the support the blog and podcast tab. Don't forget to send your material for the upcoming postbag episode. I'll be posting about it on my social media, Twitter at Neil Buttery, Insta, Doctor, that's DR underscore Neil underscore Buttery, and on the British Food History Facebook discussion page, forward slash groups, forward slash British Food History. Or of course, you can contact me directly via email, neil at britishfoodhistory.com. <sighs> All right, it's time to go. Please have a wonderful week, and I shall see you in the next episode of the British Food History Podcast. Cheerio!